This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Welcome back to another Cyclist Magazine podcast. This week, we're joined by the performance chef, Alan Murchison. But more importantly, up front, we're joined by my venerable and honorable co-host, Mr. James Bender. Thank you, Anthony. How are you doing, my friend? Have you ever been described as venerable? Venerable? I, no, I haven't. I don't even know what it means. Do you know what? I came across a really good descriptive word the other day, avuncular. Do you know what that means? I don't. It means uncle-like. It means you behave like an uncle. <laughs> and you know, my sister is due to have her first child in early New Year. So I'm quite excited to use that word. Yeah, you can be the avuncular uncle. I think it means you get to be like slightly inebriated all the time. You just basically be a bit pissed. I think that's what avuncular means. Yeah, I kind of feel like there's a Jimmy Savile connotation to it. <laughs> I mean, there's also, there's that weird thing with, I don't know how you feel about having, do you have mates? who have kids and do those kids refer to you as uncle anthony even though you're not related is that a thing no that's not an irish an irishism it's not an irish well it's definitely an englishism and i'm sure it's very much an americanism but yeah this idea that like older people who your um your parents mates might de facto get referred to as auntie and uncle to kind of to help i guess to help children sort of create a that hierarchy of the world that helps to understand. I just find it really weird. It's like I'm not related to you. And there's something really seedy about being called an uncle when you're not related <laughs> to somebody. Uh, you wouldn't want to have a delicate disposition getting into today's chat with Alan because I've worked briefly in a kitchen and it is a high octane environment. It's high performance and high performance itself carries a, a lot of challenges and sacrifices. But the kitchen is also a, a super stressful environment. Yeah, well, I can I can vouch for that first time as well. Oh, I knew this I, was coming. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, long before <laughs> set this. Set me up. Cheers, mate. Long before this, um, I, I too achieved um, a GMVQ2 for City and Guild's qualification in catering, which allowed me to be a chef professionally which I was a chef before professionally as well, because basically that just means someone pays you to um, you know, flip stuff with a spatula. But I did it for a while. And do you know what? I've seen, th- you know, have you seen Boiling Point, the film with Stephen Graham, all, yeah. all happens in one take? And have you read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential? No. Uh, some, I mean, that is, that is definitely worth a read. But there are two types of kitchens, and there are those kitchens, and they're the sort of ones that I worked in, which were actually just quite nice because, you know, <laughs> the level of food is not high enough for anyone to care about, to be honest. <laughs> but at the same time, I have never felt like more of an imposter in a kitchen and I have never, and I think I did actually cry once after a shift. It's so stressful when it's like having a baby that you never wanted, demands to be fed all the time. And then you get to the end of the day and you clean, you have to clean it all up, put it to bed and then wake up the next day having had zero hours sleep to do it all over again. Well, this is the part of high performance, the the dirty underbelly of high performance that people don't like to consider we love to celebrate our athletes getting podiums winning world titles but we don't have an awareness and you know that's driven by us in podcasts and mainstream media we don't have an awareness of the sacrifices to go into high performance and the really gritty truth of what it takes to be high performance yeah i was i'd suggest that is that's very true there is the kind of there's the darkness and you know for example and i'm not saying this is what makes you high performance although I think probably also it does take you to that extra mad um, higher height. You know, people being incredibly surprised and taken aback when um, lids are lifted on uh, systematic doping in sport, obviously in ours, 
Uh, that's the first one that springs to mind. I guess that to me is symptomatic or that is an element of what you just described, which is there's so much behind the scenes stuff that is is alien. It exists in a different world. It's a different language. It doesn't make sense to us. Doping shouldn't make sense to anybody. But there's other things um, which we you know will come to in this interview where it just makes you know it makes life as a cyclist sound really bloody horrible and kind of completely ununderstandable. But it exists in their vernacular. It does seem to work in their sphere, doesn't it? It's high performance is not for everyone, and I think this is the challenge we're going into in a very inclusive society that people are trying to mold where you know there's participation medals used to be you just got a medal if you're on the podium now everyone gets a medal in an environment of participation medals and 10th place trophies it sits really in stark contrast to what it means to be high performance and the demands and the binary nature of you're either swat or you're not true but then my conjecture to that is, I'm not maybe you're not making this argument, but does that mean that we shouldn't have the kind of participation medals? Does that somehow devalue those who have won an event to know that everybody else also got a medal just for finishing it? We definitely shouldn't have participation awards. <laughs> I would completely disagree. I completely, I'd say that's one thing that is has slowly begun to improve about... Because, for an example, I used to play a lot of football as a kid, which... I wasn't particularly good at, and I would often get, uh, you know, most improved player award or like the fairness award. Yeah, they need to cancel. That's a bullshit trophy. <laughs> no, I see. I, see it, I, I disagree because what invariably happened is it used to be quite nice when we were younger because the dads of my mates used to run the little club and we were actually really good and we smashed the leagues, but just because we had some like slightly aggy uh, centre forwards who just banging the goals. But the point is, as I got older, and the kind of nice parental steering was taken out of it. And I started just playing with, you know, proper rough boys through, you know, the rest of secondary school and university and onwards. It was only a few years ago I just decided just to stop playing because it just wasn't fun. And the reason it wasn't fun is because everyone took it really seriously. And part of taking it seriously was it wasn't good enough just to try, just to try, just to try and come and enjoy it and play. You had to be really good. Otherwise, you know, you just got lambasted for being crap or you just, you just get made to feel... Like it's, it just ceases to become fun. And for the majority of people, like 99.9% of people are never going to win anything. They're just going to enjoy doing it. So I, I say champion that participation. And if you want to be incredible, go and be incredible somewhere else. Don't do it on my football pitch because you make me feel bad. But that's the, I think that is the, the line between high performance and participation sport. When you get into high performance, it's, it's a hard environment. It's people's feelings are going to get hurt. Everyone can't be a winner. It's it's a rare air and everybody can't breed that. It's not designed for everyone else. Most people can go and do a sportif and it's an inclusive environment or gravel has become an inclusive environment. But don't turn up to the Cat 1 criterium in industrial estate and, and expect to be clapped home if you come down five laps down on everyone else because it's high performance. It's not going to happen. No, and I get that. There is That is the kind of cutthroat world of sport and that is what makes people better and better and better is because number one it probably doesn't feel very good to get even if you do get clapped home five laps down that's going to make you want to do better next time but yeah I, I suppose often talking to really high level athletes about high level athlete type achievements I'm left out in the cold because I just can't I can't relate to it I, I respect what they do and I think it's amazing I love to be a bystander but it's trying to apply any of those rules to myself i'm just too i'm just too lazy and i just want to enjoy things too much 
I don't want to make the sacrifices. But I often wonder, should we celebrate those sacrifices? Should we, you know, because we do celebrate the Olympic champion who comes home. But we're also, by the same token, celebrating, you know, someone hypothetical that's broken marriages, addiction problems, antics. Like Michael Phelps went through a very, very dark period and contemplated suicidal ideations after being the most decorated Olympian in history. Like if you win a gold medal, well, you've lost all your friends, you've lost your mental health, you've lost your connection with your family. Is it worth it? Do, should we celebrate that as an achievement or should we say, you know, there has to be a, a better way? Well, yeah, that is, that's, that's the perennial question. I, it comes down to, could he be as good as he was if he didn't make those sacrifices? And the answer is probably no. And the next question is, but do we need somebody to be as good as he was? And if the answer is yes, then we're just going to have to concede that we need him to make those sacrifices. And if he's going to make them, then we're going to probably have to celebrate them for that person to continue to make them to be brilliant? Or do we as a society decide that we don't need our champions to look like that because we'd rather they were happy champions, in which case, arguably, maybe like the level of achievement would drop down but and we'd have to be okay with that. And I think that's an overly simplistic way of looking at it, but I feel like it's horrible to celebrate anybody's failures. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of what you end up doing. You fetish, like I can never say it, fetish size fetishicize anyway you make a fetish of suffering and it's happened in cycling for for ages hasn't it and, and amateurs you've seen it you've seen the pride that people take in hurting themselves to be better at cycling it's not just hurting themselves to be better at cycling it's the pride in hurting yourself to be better at cycling yeah and i got a brief insight into what it takes to step up to those upper echelons and to step up each step on this uh, proverbial ladder requires more and more sacrifice. So I'm really interested and excited to welcome Alan to the podcast and give us this insight into what it takes and what it means to be high performance. So welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. He's a Michelin star chef. He is dubbed the cycling performance chef. And he's chefed for some of the best cycling teams in the world and some of the best bike riders in the world, including GB. Welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Alan Murchison. Alan, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Good to meet you guys. Alan, I had a, a brief chance to race my bike over in France and I was a couple of years over there, and one of the expressions that kept getting repeated over and over again was le métier, le métier. And there's no direct translation for le métier into English, but it's it kind of means like the apprenticeship or the, the hard graft or the art of working towards something, knowing there's, like a, there's a step up the ladder. When I think about your chefing career, going into the kitchens at 14 years old, it seems like it's just, it's le métier, le métier, le métier. What was that process like from working your way up from the very entry-level position? It was very hard, to be honest, Anthony. Um, back in the day, you had to do the time. Like when I was 14, 15, they had a, a scheme in the UK called the Youth Training Scheme, also known as Young, Thick and Stupid. So basically, <laughs> if, you, if you weren't academic in any way, or obviously academic, they'd put you into this youth training scheme to basically make sure you had something to keep you out of trouble. And the main the main sort of career focus was either the building trades or hospitality. So I got involved in that whilst washing up, you know, washing up in a, in a kitchen 
was something that I started doing again, 14 years old. And it was a really harsh environment, to be honest. You know, you you got in, you had to wash up, you had to clean the kitchen. But the, the beauty of it, you could see the progression. You could see the stepping stones because all of the chefs that were in kitchens in those days, they weren't inspired by TV chefs. You know, there weren't those icons in the industry you could look up to, oh, I want to be like that. It was just hard graft. So invariably, they started at the very bottom, washing up. Then you might get to peel potatoes and vegetables. <laughs> then, you know, you might get to do, you know, you might get to put the dry goods away. And there was progression, but it, it was a very harsh environment. And, you know, you look at how it is in, in this day and age of political correctness and everybody almost being overly polite. It was almost the complete opposite of that. It was, you had to earn your stripes. It was very much a, a, a sort of survive mentality within kitchens then and it, and it was harsh to be honest but there was progression available and that was a thing that inspired me really but that initial kind of like jumping in aged aged you know 14 15 taking on chefing i guess and working in kitchens as you know i'm guessing you weren't thinking at that age i'm going to make this a career pretty quickly segued into you working in some really impressive places you're working at a Michelin starred uh, in Vlocky Castle in 1996, so about around about 19, and you went to Le Autoland, which um, is a restaurant in Reading, which you then became head chef at much later, and at Michelin stars out there. At what point during that progression did you start really taking chefing seriously, and what I'm thinking did you have to sacrifice in order to do that? I worked with a chef when I was 18, 19, a guy called Graham Newbold. And I got it. I completely got it. That was at Inverlochy Castle. He had standards that I'd never seen before. You know, he was operating on a different level. And, you know, I, I quite often, you know, if you, if you compare it to cycling, because this is a cycling podcast, there's different levels. You know, there's people that go out a couple of times a week and they ride the bike. So they're cyclists. And then you've got world tour riders and you've got Olympians that they're completely invested in it. And I could see that there was different levels within chefing, like where I'd come from working in a sort of local Italian restaurant in my hometown, you could see the quality of life that the guys had. You could see the, the standards, but you could also see the compromises. And I saw very early on that there was different levels. So it was probably Graham. And that was that was Inverlochy the first time. that I worked in Inverlochy in the 80s. And at that point, there was two Michelin star restaurants in the whole of Scotland. That was it. There was only a handful in the UK. And Graham had come from working at the Connaught, which was two-star Michelin at the time, and then he'd been private chef to the Prince and Princess of Wales. So this guy had standards that were off the charts, and there was zero compromise. There was zero thought about cost. It was all about delivery of excellence. And that was probably the pivotal moment that I realized that the the levels were, were huge. And I, I don't actually like the word sacrifice. I think it's more personal investment. Because people talk about sacrifice, oh, I sacrifice myself in sport or sacrifice. And I actually think it's a bit of a nonsense because ultimately you get out what you get in. You know, you're not working in a war zone, you're not working in a, in a coal mine. I would say it's more personal investment. So I recognized, I was probably 18 or 19, that the more I invested in myself, the potential brighter the future. But that was through very heavy, sometimes direct, mentorship from one particular guy that made me realize that the compromise would always be your quality of life outside the kitchen you know we were working 16 17 18 hours a day at 18 
and that was it. That was what you did. You know, you, your time off was limited to when you got your job done. But that instilled in me a work ethic, which was probably detrimental to everything outside the kitchen, to be honest. But it's no different to elite sport. You know, if you look at anybody on an Olympic cycle, after the Olympics, they might have a year that they can do what the hell they want. But the three years leading up to it, it'll be that laser line focus and every single thing is going to help them achieve that goal. And that was what I was doing, but in a culinary perspective. Alan, you mentioned the word standards a couple of times there. I think standards is a fascinating word. I'm obsessed with this thread that links top performers, be they kind of authors, academics, chefs, athletes, whatever it is. So some people have goals, they have hopes, they have dreams. But the thing is, we don't always get our goals, our hopes, our dreams, but we always hit our standards. If our standard is like we pay our bills on time, we pay our bills on time. If our standard is we just get by, we just get by. If our standard is we save 20% of our wages every month, that's our standard. But you see these great managers in football teams or great directors that inspire these high standards in a cycling capacity. How do you build an environment where these high standards are the norm? I think it's, first of all, it's process-driven goals. And I think that's something that's really important. And it's also identifying what success looks like. Because most people have got no idea what success looks like. You know, they go barreling into a training plan or a job or a relationship. And they don't actually know what the outcome is. You know, it's, it, they don't really know what they're working towards. You know, so I, am, I knew when I was 18, what did success look like? for me, was getting through every service without getting the food thrown at me. You know, actually <laughs> making it through a day without getting your head ripped off. Because if it got past the chef, who was God, uh, at that point, and there was never any there was never any debate in it, there was one answer to every single thing that was said to you, that was yes, chef. You know, and, and it was, and, and that was very much how it was. So initially, what did success look like? It was, wow, I got through today without getting my head ripped off. Everything got past the chef that needed to. So that standard was initially there. And it's really difficult because I think in sport, success is much easier to measure. You know, sport, ideally, elite sport is all about winning. But there's different levels. So you might have athletes, you know, again, the cycling podcast, you might have athletes that want to get and ride for a local club. You know, they want to get around the weekend rides and they want to be able to hang on the back of a chain gang. You've got athletes that might want to compete in National Bs. You've got athletes that might want to break 20 minutes for 10 miles. Or they might want to get onto the National Squad or the Podium Squad or even making the Olympics. And I think it's really important that you identify what success looks like and then you can work backwards from that point. So say, for example, a young Anthony, he wants to go to the Olympics. And for him getting on the squad and actually making Olympics a success, he then, his behaviours around that will be dictated by what success looks like. Whereas if James said, right, nothing less than winning an Olympic gold medal, that's a very different mentality. You know, you you cut your cloth accordingly. So for me, I think at 18, 19, even those early days, I wanted to own my own restaurant and I wanted to have a Michelin star to myself. That was my goal at 18. And all my behaviours... And all the the tactical moves I made were around that. That was what it looked like. But it's very difficult because food is subjective. Like, what what's a good meal? So I said to you guys, what's the best meal you've ever eaten? You know what? It could be a bacon sandwich that you've had after a heavy night out. It could be a 10-course tasty menu at Alan Ducasse restaurant in Monte Carlo. Do you know what? It could be a family meal around the table. 
at Christmas. It could be any one of these things. So success around food is actually quite subjective. I think success in sport is less subjective because you can have clearly defined and measurable goals. And that's what I would say is first and foremost, I knew what I wanted even at 18. I had a eureka moment. I want to be that chef with my name on my jacket and a star in the little red book. And then all the behaviours around that was, okay, well, what do I do to get that? So I worked at a, a one-star Michelin restaurant with an absolute bean bland, a bastard of a chef. <laughs> but those were the behaviours that were accepted and normal in those times. You know, if something wasn't right, it was thrown at you. That was it. You know, you would get palms thrown across the kitchen. You know, you'd get threatened. You'd get a clip around the ear. It was what it was. And that that is the environment that we were in in that time. And all those behaviours very much were towards that end goal. So I would say the similarities between elite sport and elite cooking or any elite environment is the same. First and foremost, identify success and also be willing to adapt that because I think success looks very different at different stages of your life. Like what success looks like as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old and 40-year-old is very, very different. And if you speak to any elite athlete, they'll tell you the same. You know, when they're 18, they want to get on the national squad. When they're 20, they might want to get on the senior squad or they might want a sponsorship deal. Or you could have some of these outliers. Like if you look at the current crop of, say, British cyclists, if you look at Ethan Hayter, Ethan Vernon, people like that, and those guys at 19, 20, they knew they were going to be Olympic champions or world champions. They knew it. You know, they could see it. They were on that trajectory. And if you asked, you know, an 18-year-old Ethan Hayter, what his goals were, I bet he could tell you exactly what he wanted to do. I bet he was world and Olympic champion. And he would have the infrastructure and the support around him to do that. I was doing the same thing in food. So in that, you know, in that case, I think you've probably got some unique insights, which only would be shared with someone uh, like, a, like an Ethan Hayter, which is not just knowing what your success looks like and what those goals look like and what it means to get there, but achieving it. Because you mentioned then, you know, you wanted back when you're 18, 19, that kind of epiphany moment where you're like, I just want to be in that little red book. I want to have my rosettes. I want to have my Michelin stars. And then by 2003, so you would have been 26, 27. Is that about right? At Autoland, you had uh, your first Michelin star. No, no, I was, how old was I? I was trying to think how old I was. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was about right. Yeah, how old was I then? Yeah, I would have been... I set up my own restaurant, my first restaurant in 2001, and I got my first star in 2003. So, uh, yeah, I was in my, in my early 30s when I got my first Michelin star to, on my own name, on my own basis. Right. Yeah. So how it works, it's a bit complicated if you don't know. You can work in Michelin star restaurants, but to get your name in the book with the star aligned to it, I was, yeah, it was 2003, I think it was. So I'd worked for... Ah, Jesus, that's what seemed an absolute lifetime. Probably 15 years, 16 years, maybe that. I'm, try, I'm trying to put my timeline on it to get that first tick in the box. That was, that, that was when you did it. But it, it, was, it was a huge investment to do that. And you compromised every single thing outside work to get to that point. But again, no different to your elite sport. You know, those guys aren't out on the piss every weekend. They're not going to family. You know, if there's a major event on or a key race, they won't be compromising what their long-term goals are just for the sake of it. And again, if you go back to Hater as a good example, I'm talking about Hater because I've, I've obviously worked with them. Um, if you look at Hater, Hater missed the Commonwealth Games this year at home, a home Commonwealth Games. 
because it didn't fit in with his big plan. The home, the, a home Commonwealth Games meant nothing to him because he was doing the stage race for Ineos. Is that going to help him win the Olympics or win the World Championships? Probably not. That takes a hell of a hell of a commitment to, to miss a home games because he was in shape when the Commie Games were on this year and he didn't t- he didn't come to them. So that yeah, that that's exactly like as we were saying at the top of the show, you know, that's that's the huge compromises that do I know you don't want to use the word sacrifice, but borderline on that and really having it drilled as to how you're going to, you know, step stone your way to where you need to be and there's going to be sorts of things that you cut out. And I'm assuming, yeah, that that process for you in um, the couple of years working towards a Michelin star having taken over your own place was was riddled with those things. But I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm feeling that there must be not just a parallel with you and the guys that you work with in terms of helping them towards their success goals, but you know what it's like to get there because in your early 30s, 2003, you've, you've, you've done what you set out to achieve. What does it feel like after that? Because, you know, we see that, we hear that from Olympians, um, from great champions in any kind of sport, that there is a come down, isn't there? Because you, you've reached that height and then it's kind of like, well, and now it's tomorrow and what happens tomorrow? Yeah, it's, it's difficult with, with the Michelin star because it's constantly assessed. You know, it'd be about that, again, it, you could be world champion. Imagine every race somebody was saying, is he worthy of the stripes? And they do it. They do it in sport. You get the curse of the rainbow stripes. It's like they win the, win the worlds. And as an athlete, you probably think, ah, oh, thank God for that. I've achieved that. I can, you know, I can have a couple of beers at the weekend. I can, you know, I can go and have a dirty burger. I can miss that training session because I've achieved this goal. Let me enjoy it. And there is that relief. But then on, on the other hand, you know, everybody goes, oh, well, they should be winning. They should be winning. And, and and it's exactly the same with food because you could get a Michelin star and it used to be the end of January and there would be a press release would come out and you would literally sit by a fax machine. Remember, if you boys are too young, you know, to remember fax machine. But you'd sit by a fax machine or you'd you'd wait and you'd get this right. This is the list. You know, you never got caught. A list came out and you just got your name on it. I, I remember it. I remember it this day. And, and man, you were beside. But then... You've got to get your shit together for lunch because somebody's coming for the birthday or the wedding anniversary. <laughs> and they don't give a shit whether you've just got me since that. They've booked this up. Or that Saturday night, you might have 60 people coming in. Do you know what I mean? So you cannot rest in your rollers and you're constantly assessed. So in some respect, there's almost there's there's a real weird pressure to be constantly innovating, to constantly be trying to improve. But then there's also that, right, we need to stabilize stuff here. You know, we need to be consistent because Michelin Star Cooking is all about consistency. It's all about it's all about that delivery. Can you do it on a Tuesday lunch? Can you do it on a Thursday dinner? So you kind of caught between you need to play it safe, but then you also need to keep trying to increase your standards by, you know, we use this term a lot in sport, that's marginal gains bollocks that you hear all the time. But we were always doing that on every item, every single time. You're saying, can we make this just that little bit better? Um, so there's there's that pressure that comes with it because, you know, if I looked at, say, a restaurant like Lortelon, we were doing, you know, over the course of a year, you could do, you know, 50,000 people. You could do 30,000 people. But say you've got, you've got 1,000 people a week coming through your restaurants, that's a lot of times to make mistakes because bearing in mind, every item on every plate, every single time is assessed. That's what you've got to think of. So if you put a plate in front of a Michelin inspector and something ain't right, they'll look at that. And if it's not right the next time they visit, you are in the shit. That is, that's, that is it. So that, and you never know when they're going to be in. So there's almost, there's that relief, but then 
there's the pressure of the guide. And I'll tell you one thing, the twitchiest moment you ever get is every single restaurateur that has a Michelin star will sit waiting for that guidebook to come out every year. And the people that say it doesn't matter have never operated at that standard. They just haven't done it. They haven't made the investment. So we go, ah, doesn't matter. It's not relevant. Bollocks. Absolutely. That would be like being a professional cyclist and saying, you know what? I don't want to go to Worlds. It's not that important. You're <laughs> lying to yourself. You are kidding yourself. You know, first and foremost, you haven't got the, the investment. You know, so any rider that doesn't want to represent the national squad or put that jersey on is lying as a pro because you're not selectively professional. Or if you are, you're not a very good professional. You know, and it's the same in cooking. Anybody that's working in fine dining that says Michelin stars are not relevant hasn't got the investment, ability, dedication, commitment to actually get one. And it's as simple as that. A good friend once told me, you race on the road and you train on the turbo. But is the turbo trainer the best tool for the job these days? Well, the Watt Bike Adam is a dedicated smart bike to make indoor training more engaging and fun. It's really convenient so you get the most out of your indoor miles. No switching bikes, wearing down bike components or slipping gears. The Atom is a simply a plug and play setup with all the data you need to get the most out of your training. It has a smaller footprint than a full turbo setup, so it fits in even the most compact spaces. The first Watt bike was developed alongside British Cycling and was a crucial tool for Team GB's success at the 2008 Olympics, helping to identify talent and quantify it with immense accuracy for training. And the Watt bike Atom Smart Bike builds on that original Watt bike platform to bring industry-leading accuracy and intelligent pedaling analysis and training. These together combine to help riders develop not just power and stamina, but pedaling efficiency too. I love its real-world feel, right down to the Atom's proper-feeling gear shifters. Plus, I can connect it to my favorite training apps like Zwift or just plug-and-play with Wattbike's free workout and training plan platform, the Wattbike Hub app. So claim £250 off the Wattbike Atom today with code CYCLIST250 and apply that at checkout on wattbike.com. That's cyclist250 applied at the checkout on whatbike.com. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus, and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military, and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast Health via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. 
Alan, I wonder, so you've the Michelin star in your profession and we have Tour de France, Olympic Games, whatever the pinnacle is of our profession. But if you take, uh, we take a 16-year-old, we'll, say, we'll call him a fictitious rider, maybe people can work him out. But you take a 16-year-old rider who comes into the British system, he's a raw kid, works his way through the system, progresses, starts winning Olympic gold medals, gets to the point where he wins a Tour de France. Off the far side of the Tour de France, he comes out a pretty broken man, his marriage broken, some borderline substance abuse issues. If we zoom out and we look at this, you know, as objective observers, can we view someone who's won the Tour de France but has sacrificed every other facet of their life? Can we call that success? Probably yes, because they've achieved their goals. But success always comes with penalties. And if you work with Uber elites, and I've been fortunate to work with a number of Uber elites, that you're talking real, you know, multiple world and multiple Olympic champions, that those people are special. You know, it's a bit like people who have multiple Michelin stars. At the end of the day, to be excellent at anything, you need obsessive behavior. And obsession and absolute devastation are so closely aligned, it's not true. So you think about the Uber elites. Are Uber elites nice people? You know, do you think, you know, so if you look at, the restaurant world, somebody that'll be known to us all, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon is actually deep down a really nice guy because he's a he's achieved his objectives. You know, he's he's a very wealthy guy. He's got multiple starred restaurants. You know, he's financially secure and he's a brand name. I'll tell you one thing: if you worked with Gordon twenty years ago, that would have been a very different beast. It's a bit like I imagine if you worked with a, a young Chris Hoy, you know, or you worked with a young Ed Clancy, or you know, you, those guys would have had a laser line focus that you wouldn't want it to cross. So no, it, it will come with it. And the difference between, you know, to be obsessive, to be excellent, you will lose. There will be collateral along the way. Like I'm, I'm two marriages down. That's fairly common for people in, in my world. You know, I didn't take a weekend off seven years. Would you change that, Alan? Was it worth the sacrifice? Um, at the time, I believed I was doing the right thing. Now with the benefit of hindsight, what do you with, think? With the benefit of hindsight, would I do it differently? I don't know. I thought about it a lot because I've lost a huge amount of personal relationships along the way. And you'll find it. You know, you speak to anybody, it's along the way. Like, you look at Bradley Wiggins, for example. Like, man, look at the devastation that man's got behind him. You know, but he achieved something nobody ever thought possible. Like, I don't know how many, you know, like, so if you take 30% of what we read about Bradley Wiggins in the press to be true, you know, because obviously everybody wants to create a story around him. Jesus you know, that, that, there is a trail of devastation. But I'll tell you one thing, if you looked at the, you know, the chefs that got Michelin stars in the early 2000s, how many of them are still married? How many of them are still relationships? How many of them haven't been bankrupt or bust? And you'll find it will be a very, very small percentage because those high performers are quite often flawed individuals. You know, it's very unusual to get a, an uber elite athlete that is incredibly well balanced, is very polite, still have got the, the, you know, the friends they grew up in school with because it's all encompassing. And, and, you know, I often say this about elite athletes, you know, you very rarely hear from an elite athlete uh, outside when you can help them. It's about like in a restaurant. If you phone me up on a Thursday night, I'd be saying, well, why the hell is Anthony phoning me up on a Thursday night for? I've got 40 people for dinner. Is this conversation going to help me get these 40 tasty menus out tonight? No, bollocks, I'll, I'll ignore that call. And there's only so often you can do that. And there's only so often that you miss birthdays or anniversaries or you don't take weekends off for special family occasions and you're still involved. And it's exactly the same mentality. Um, so would I change it? 
Ah, uh, I don't know. I'd be really caught because I just don't know whether I would have achieved my short-term goals. Like long-term, I've got very few good relationships based from the early 2000s when I was pushing ahead with work. I'll be honest with you. I think you'd probably find the same thing with a lot of people that were, you know, trying to work their way up the performance pyramid. It's, it's really difficult to do that because at the end of the day, it's all about your goals and it's all about your objectives. And, you know, I've worked with athletes that unless you can help them achieve the, the short, medium, long-term goals, you won't hear from them. They're not bad people. It's just not about, right, is this person going to help me achieve this goal? But I could tell you on one arm, the, the elite athletes in my little black book that if I message, I'd get a response back to if they were around the major events. Like I can totally remember myself in that lens trying to climb the cycling ladder and being out in France and pursuing Conti contracts. And I looked at everything through a binary lens. Like, will this walk up my girlfriend, make it more likely or less likely? I'm going to win this bike race. Less likely, can the walk. There's only so many times you can can the yeah. walk before the relationship gets canned. It was the same way looking at relationships, like traveling home for this birthday, more likely or less likely I'm going to be going well. You miss the birthday. And then you miss two or three birthdays, you're out of the circle. Completely. I, I remember early days of setting up um, the restaurant. Oh, it was probably 2002, 2003. Um, I fell off a bike. I ride a mountain bike. I, I cracked my ribs, fractured my skull, was knocked unconscious. I was at work. I went to work. I couldn't actually lift my arm to get a pan off the stove. I was at work. It was nuts. And I also remember a really interesting one. This is back in the late 90s. And this, this, was the, uh, this, this will give you a really, really good idea of the mindset. I was working at Lortelon for a two-star Michelin chef, a guy called John Burton Race. He owned it before I had it. And I remember this really clearly. So my son is, what, 25, 26. My wife went into labor on the Saturday. I got a phone call to say she was in labor. I left work. I said to Monique, go, she's in labor. I went, to, I left work. I was docked two days wages. And I was told if I wasn't back to work on the Tuesday, I was sacked. And I went back to work. Bear in mind, the restaurant was closed on the Monday. So I missed one service <laughs> Saturday night. And that was, the, and I went back to work. It's crazy. So culture. first of all, he asked me to do that and told me if I didn't come back to work, I wouldn't have a job. And secondly, I accepted that, that that was part of the culture. That's what I needed to do to keep my job in the two-star Michelin restaurant. That will give you an idea of the mindset in the late 90s, early 2000s. I, can you imagine that in this day and age in the current climate? You'd be straight on to some lawyer. You know, this guy would be slapped with a lawsuit. It wouldn't happen. But that was the mindset of when you're doing it. And you, you, you've been there. You know, you, you know, would you go to a family gathering? You think, Christ, I could get a cold. Nah, I can't do that. Or, you know, that's going to fatigue me. But I didn't take a day off for seven years when the restaurant was open. The restaurant was open. I was there. Not then matter whether you were ill, whether it's birthdays, whether it's anniversaries, whether it's events at school. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. It just it didn't fit it. And you will find exactly the same thing. And if you listen to any of them, you're like, I remember um, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was Garen Thomas' podcast. He was talking about his 30th birthday. He was on Mount Chiedi on a training camp. You know, so it's in December. He's in a training camp. Is he leaving his training camp for his 30th birthday? No. His wife came out. You know, it's again, it's things like that. So you think for your family, that's actually huge. He's probably doing 35, 40 hours a week at the volcano. Would he leave it? No. It's the same thing, you know, and that's even in this day and age. You know, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's also, I do worry, you know, if you look at, especially where we are just now, about how we're, how 
elite professionalism and how that being committed. You know, what's the difference between, you know, commitment? Commitment is a really difficult thing to measure. And I, I do worry that the climate that we live in now is that elite mentality of compromise. Excuse me, Anthony, would you mind doing that? That doesn't work in high-performing environments. Whereas nowadays, if you put pressure on Anthony the athlete, is that bullying? Is that intimidation? Is it not? And it's it's a re- it's a it's a really difficult one because what was acceptable twenty years ago, culturally, around excellence is very different now. Well, high performance is exclusionary. Like it's a it's a rarefied air that you breed up there, and not everyone's designed to breed that air. And by its nature, it's going to hurt feelings. It's going to exclude people because it's you're operating on the fringes. Oh, no, I know, completely. And, and the people that step into that environment know, know the game. They know the game. And I think that's it. And you can't be selectively professional. You know, I, I, had, I had one incident. Uh, I remember it quite clearly. I was, um, I was overseas. I was a long way from home on a very expensive training camp uh, with British Cycling. And there was one athlete there that wasn't particularly looking after themselves that well. And we were 18 months out from the Olympics. And I remember saying to the head coach at the time, you know, this athlete, their, their behaviours around food and nutrition were not optimal for performance. And uh, I said, you need to give, give this athlete a bollocking. If I can't. You know, it's absolutely up to athlete empowerment. And I was like, you're joking. You're absolutely joking. And, and we had to almost turn a blind eye. It wasn't my job to do it. It was the head coaches because they couldn't pick this athlete up on the behaviours around food. And I thought, Jesus, this is scary. You know what I mean? They were almost compromising themselves because the athlete was not being wholly professional and it's it's, it's a tricky space to navigate you know and i'm i'm kind of glad i'm not working in restaurants these days because i think there's a, a fine line between how you know bullying support you know did you bully people completely you know did you try and intimidate people probably not but you try to get the best out of them through whatever means possible and i think it's probably the same thing in sports not for everybody you know lack of compromise you've got to be able to take a bollocking quite honestly you know you've got to be able to have some really difficult conversations with people and that's becoming i think increasingly hard to do from 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 my understanding of it with that environment you describe how personally you know you've seen you've seen how difficult it is to to deal with people for through the lens of um british cycling team gb the way that people have to be managed there in the kind of modern era and in a different way in a different industry, you were managing people or being managed um, in the catering industry. How close did you kind of come to a sort of breaking point? I mean, one th- a breaking point that people might be familiar with in professional chefing um, from a few years back would be Tom Aitkins, um, who was, I think was he was the youngest um, Michelin-starred chef in the UK at the time at a restaurant called Pierre de Terre, and he famously branded somebody with a palette knife for getting something wrong for the umpteenth time. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that is something that comes from marvelously, tremendously huge amounts of stress, I'm guessing. It's not natural behavior. How close to that marker have you kind of come and how have you managed to deal with that, you know, the psychology with it? I think what you got to remember is that you're working in a highly pressurized environment. You know everybody in that environment. And to the outside world, what you do is so alien to them. You know, like, let's be honest, you lock in a bunch of young, predominantly men, um, but a, a bunch of young, highly charged, highly motivated people in a white box for 16 to 18 hours a day, every day. 
with a clear goal. You're going to get really acute behavior within that environment. And yeah, the outline news is, you know, Tom did do something that was to everybody, to all normal people, completely and utterly outrageous. But how the hell can you brand somebody with a fork? <laughs> like you think, what the hell? But then again, you know, you'll listen to, even Vernon did a I remember listening to Vernon doing a podcast, I think, with Mark Stevens recently, and he was talking about Mark Bramier getting him to do six hours in the rain off one bottle of water and then clean a house. Like, what's the difference between those two things? You know, like, you're going to go out and ride your bike for six hours in the pissing rain. Am I? Why? You know, it's, it's actually no difference. Is anybody normal? You know, that was a punishment. That was a, you know, and you hear about stuff like that and you go, really? Um, you've just got to put it in a context. We don't know what came before. We don't know what became after. And I'm not defending that behavior in any stretch of the way. But he could have gone to move this guy out of the way. It could have been some banter going back for, or he could have just been a complete and a nasty bastard. I, I don't know. And I think what you've got to remember is that environment, you know everybody you, you work in there, and it's a bit like the military. If you go, if you looked at the sort of beastings or initiation ceremonies, or you could say teamwork or bonding that was in in that in, in, in military environments, you have to build a high performing team. You have to build a team who'll do anything for each other. But it's not normal behaviour. Nobody works sixteen hours a day. Does a hundred hours in, in five days. It's not normal, and it attracts people who are not conventionally deemed to be normal. And so I would say that if I looked at the behaviors that I displayed and the people that I work with and some of the things that I've seen and been involved in, it's completely not normal. And and a 50-year-old Alan that now works in an, an environment that I work in, those behaviors would be completely and utterly unacceptable. But what it comes down to, and this is something I think is missing a lot now, is emotional intelligence is you need to know the context of your behavior and you need to know the context of conversations you can have. So there's conversations that you would have with HR or you'd have with a reception manager or you'd have with your PA that you wouldn't have with an 18-year-old commie chef. You know, and that's where emotional intelligence comes down to is actually understanding the environment and the people and reading people. And I would say from the chefs that I've worked with in my career, 25, 30% need an absolute bollocking. They need to be fearful. They need to have that edge. They need to understand the consequences for their actions and they need to know the job's at risk. However you determine that, you know, whether that's giving them shouting, swearing, whatever you do that. And you'll find it's the same with a lot of people. Like they, they need that. Whereas probably from my experience, 70% of people probably respond well to clearly defined goals, reasoned arguments, understanding the process and understanding the outcomes there are people i can think of chefs that i work with that just needed a bollocking they needed to be on edge you needed to be on top of them 24 7 because that was the personality trait if you gave them an inch they would absolutely take the piss it doesn't mean they're bad people they just need managing differently and to the outside world if you're working in an office monday to friday and you're thinking why oh why are they doing this it's completely abnormal behavior but excellence does attract people and behaviors that are abnormal to people in the in the outside world. So I would say, you know, the sort of stuff that was branded about in the press, and you would find the same thing that would be talked about, about Marco Pierre about Gordon Ramsay, about many top chefs. You would find stuff that would be deemed to be unacceptable. You just got to understand the environment. And it's not a normal environment. It's a harsh environment. And it's also trying to get that team to work together. And 
if you if you think about behaviors that are acceptable 20 years ago and what's acceptable now you've just got to adapt accordingly you know i i had a coach years ago that was part of the british cycling junior academy whatever the hell it was called back then they used to go out and do six to eight hours on the bike with one bottle of water come in have sleeping tablets one and a half liters of sparkling water and go to bed so they'd miss a meal and they'd burn fat that's well documented that's not me making that up. That's something that happened for real. Sleeping tablets, sparkling water, starve them, get them to go to sleep, miss a meal. I've done that exact diet for the hill climb champs with a French team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know of a, a young uh, athlete that's still riding now who was with a French team two years ago. And he was told exactly the same. You know, he was he was told he needed to lose five kilos and talk, take sleeping tablets and have sparkling water and go to bed <laughs> two years ago. So you think about that from a normal person. Imagine you go in the office, right? And you say to that somebody in the office, hey, you're looking a bit, you know, you need, you're losing a bit of weight. Get yourself home and get some sleeping tablets and sparkling water. Can you imagine? You'd be in front of HR before you could say industrial tribunal. You know what I mean? You'd be like, you would be, it's it's completely abnormal. But you think about that, Anthony, right? You think about that in normal life, saying that to somebody, nah, that you'd think it was nuts, where it was accepted behavior. It's about like, you know, beasting somebody in a kitchen, humiliating somebody in a kitchen, giving them a bollocking, you know, getting them a come in early, putting them on breakfast for a week. It's no different. It's actually no different. It's abnormal behavior. And you think, would you do that now, Anthony? Would you take sleeping tablets and sparkling water and go to sleep now? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> It'd want to be a big goal. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's, it's completely different. But again, if you all your, all, if your only objective in life was to get around the chain gang on a Saturday morning, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. But if you aspire to win the National Hill Climb, you might do that type of behavior. It just attracts outliers, and that's the thing with it. You know, I can't condone violence in any stretch of means, but did people work, and did I work in environments where people felt intimidated? Did they did they fear for the job? Absolutely, absolutely. But that's how it was twenty or thirty years ago. And that doesn't mean that that behaviour is acceptable now. But at the time, that was acceptable behaviour. Do you ever work with um, athletes? Um... Because so right now, as in you're you're now the performance chef, and you're coaching many levels of athletes, including the top 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 level, with um, giving them nutrition plans um, and advice around um, eating, as well as doing kind of more commercial cookery books for people who are interested in sport, interested in cycling specifically. But when you're working with those pros now and thinking about how you were treated back then as a chef. Do you ever kind of think you guys don't even know you're born? You got it so easy and you're there with everything taken care of, a massage mm. after every single ride and everything's planned out for you. Do you, do you is there a, do you feel there's um, a kind of softness in cycling that once upon a time might not have been there? I don't know. It's it's kind of it's kind of 50-50 because I think it's really competitive now. I think I think if you look at, you know, that you you probably could have got some some softer options back in the day because it wasn't as competitive. So I would say yes and no. There was a there was a case a few years ago that was well documented about Brit, with British Cycling. They were trying to define whether they were employees or they were self-employed. Do you remember that case? It was all it was all in the press that they were trying to define it. And I remember I was where were we? We were in Portugal. We were in Portugal, and it was a, a podium squad, so Olympic athlete squad, and they were there for their. We used to do a training camp every 20 days for 10 days in Portugal. And the guys were debating around the table 
one day was at lunch or dinner. It doesn't matter when it was, but they're debating around the table. Oh, it's not fair. I said, guys, guys, take a step back. I said, you know, you're paid. Where are you? Well, we're in Portugal. I said, you, you put your washing outside your room. I cook your food. You know, Ernie pumps your tires up. Somebody <laughs> cleans your bike. Literally, you get planted on your bike. You ride your bike for six hours. You come home. Somebody does your washing. Somebody runs your legs. And I said, you travel the world. I said, unless you make a complete arse of this, you're going to the Olympics, you're going to win the medals, and you're set for life, and you get paid to do it. I said, you've got to take a step back. You've got to take a step back because, guys, this is an amazing opportunity, and it's up to you to make the most of it. And I said, so, you know, whether you're an employee, you're self-employed, but, you know, footballers get there. So I said, but you're not in football, you're in cycling. You know what I mean? You're not suddenly going to be earning 250 grand a week. That's not the nature of the sport. And I think sometimes they get a little bit, I wouldn't say complacent, a little bit comfortable in the environment and they for, they need to take a step back and, and look at the support and the infrastructure that they get given. And so I would say the, the guys I work with at the moment, so I work, my my main role outside doing personalised plans is I work with specialised factory racing, the mountain bike guys at the moment, and they're all Olympians. They're all world champions and they've all operated at a really high level. Those guys are really appreciative of what they got because they know they're on the best kit they know they've got the best mechanics, they've got the best food support, and they are hugely appreciative of the team. They are. But they're also comfortable in that environment because mountain bikes are very different to roads. So you think if you were on a road team, if you were a male rider on a road team, there'd be 30 riders, and you all want to go to the Tour de France, you all want to do the classics, you know, you all want to do these key events. You are fighting for places. So if there was 30 riders on a roster... There's only eight go to the Tour. There's only eight go to the Vuelta. Only eight go to the Giro. There's only a certain amount will go and do the Classics. You're always fighting for it. Whereas with a mountain bike, they all do every World Cup. They've all got the same level of support. You know, they're all equal. Um, so they're, they are, that, that's not a stress for them. So I would say in some respects, yeah, they, they do have it easy. But the, you now know an elite sport that everybody's doing everything. Do you know what I mean? Everybody's looking at psychology. Everybody's looking at the physiology. Everybody's doing winter training. Everybody's doing weights. Everybody is, you know, everybody is looking at everything. So you, you unless you're doing, you know, always you're looking at what's the next thing. So whether that's wearable tech, whether that's like something like Super Sapiens, there's a new bit of tech coming out now developed by a company and it's called Flow Bio, which is looking like electro, electrolyte se- um, sensors. Like, unless you're doing every single thing, you won't be competitive in the current environment because how many riders are doing six watts per kilo at climbs now? That used to be a handful. That's what everybody's doing now, you know. And if you look at the pace and the speed of everything, you know, everybody's looking at aero, everybody's looking at the diet, everybody's looking at strength and conditioning. There's a comfort, but there's also the fact unless you're doing everything brilliantly, you just won't be competitive in the current environment. It's as simple as that. Alan, just to finish up, uh, I think we're in a, a strange place in society with social media culture. Even you know, even your Instagram game is brilliant. I flick to it for motivation every now and then. But it looks so glamorous. Life looks so glamorous on Instagram because it's a highlight reel. Everyone's putting their best foot forward. It's the matchy matchy kit. It's the nice bikes. We're in danger of missing the harder, darker side of some of these success stories. So I'm wondering when you look back on your career and I say to you, what's a text message, an email, a phone call, a moment that represents your darkest time, the hardest, most challenging time? Is there anything that springs to mind? God, 
running my own business, we had we had some challenging times, to be honest. Like I think going through going through the ranks, where I started work at Le Mans World Cup which was a two Michelin star institution. I started working there in the late nineties. That was hard. That was really hard. That was doing uh, sort of eighty thousand people a year at two star Michelin level. That was hard for me, and I would say that was dark times because I was living away from my kids. I had two young kids at the time. Uh, I got to see them like one day, maybe one or two days out of every two weeks. I was so exhausted, I couldn't do anything. I literally couldn't. I was I was barely functioning. That was hard because I knew I needed to get through that. And I wasn't learning so much about cooking. That was about people skills. So that was a really hard time. So I'd say my time at the memoir was really hard, but it made me as a chef. And I don't mean a cooking chef. I mean somebody that could manage people under pressure. So that was hard. And then when I set up my own business, I opened Lortelon under my own name in August 2001. I'd left a really good job, a really stable job, a really well-paid job in an environment that I enjoyed at the memoir to set up my own restaurant. So I started August 2001. September 11th came a month after I opened. And I, I thought I, I was being really intelligent. So I opened a restaurant that within 10 minutes from the restaurant, we had the head offices of IBM, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Siemens, Pepsi, Gillette, Porsche. We had so ama- amazing tech companies on our doorstep. And we had September 11th. So within the big scheme of things, you know, what had happened globally after September 11th, I was trying to run a business that was catering to high wealth individuals and tech companies, and we lost all our business overnight. That was really hard. So how you manage that was difficult. I would say the other one was when we had the recession coming 2008, 2009. That was the hardest thing. I had to get rid of 20 staff on Christmas Eve, December 2008. That was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And I literally had to go through a list and say it was a cross and a tick. It's like a naughty and nice list. Uh, It was horrendous. It was horrendous. And I, we worked really, really hard and there were certain people that we had to get rid of within that business. And it was the only way the business was going to survive. And they were people I'd worked elbow to elbow with. They'd worked relentlessly hard for me, but I had to get rid of these people and that is absolutely savage. It was probably that that was the hardest thing I do, but it was the only way the business could survive. And it was like, I'm sorry, you don't have a job for you when you come back in January. Because we knew we knew what was coming and we knew that 2009 was going to be the hardest business trading year you know, in, in, in recent history, just because of the way the economy was. And that was hard because you were you were basically going through a list and saying these people were great. But again, it's no different to you know, when they're catting athletes to go to Olympics. You know, you look at some of the athletes that were cut from the Olympic program, you know, guys that I work with, and that's really hard because they're basically given a month's notice. And the thing is, those skills are not transferable. So if you look at, say, British cycling, they got rid of, like, if you look at the women in particular, they got rid of two amazing athletes. They got rid of Ellen Dickinson and Emily Nelson from the podium squad before Tokyo Olympics. Like, bear in mind, Nelson was world champion. She'd been world Madison champion with Katie Archibald in 2018 and she got cut. That was it. No, no. Well, what do you do now? You know, you can't go and ride for another nation. She was a track cyclist. What do you do then? That was it. You know, you're in your early twenties and suddenly you're off the squad. And that was savage, absolutely savage. And she's reinvented herself and has just qualified as a, an officer in the army 
not in the army, she's in the Marines. She's in something cool, really cool. And then the other one was Ellen Dickinson. Like she'd been such an integral part of that team. She was off the squad. And it's it's no different to what we had to do in the restaurant business. We only had a certain amount of places that we could afford to keep moving forward. And you had to go to these brilliant people who in any other circumstances you'd have absolutely died on your sword to keep them. And we had to cut them. And I had to have that conversation. And that's that's horrible. But that's only in a business. You've got to make difficult decisions for the, the greater good of the business. Alan, it was an amazing insight into what it takes to be high performance. The Cycling Chef Recipes for Performance and Pleasure. Every cyclist should have a copy of it. It's a brilliant book. Uh, Alan, thank you for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Alan. James, do you feel like you've taken a misstep in life? Do you feel like you should have sacrificed everything, your mental health, your career, your relationships to be high performance? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do. I should have sacrificed it in chefing. I should have long since sacrificed it in journalism. Um, I should have quit ages ago and written a series of incredible novels. I should have lost loads of weight and become a champion cyclist. I don't, I don't know. No, no is the answer. No, I don't. I, I feel like I like being a, I wouldn't say a jack of all trades, but it's quite nice doing lots of things. I don't know if I'd have the focus. Do you wish that you, here's a good example. Do you wish that you hadn't done the podcast, that you hadn't studied law, that you weren't in the relationship that you're in, but you were, you know, about to go to a, a, a training camp in Calpie with your new world tour contract in January? Well, that old cliche, jack of all trades, master and none, it's, it sounds like that's something bad. It sounds like it's a cautionary tale to specialize in one area of your life. But I would argue it's actually the opposite, that if you're a master of one, you've total atrophy in every other area of your life. Like in your literary world, could Hunter S. Thompson be Hunter S. Thompson and also have a balanced life and drop the kids off to school in the morning? And, you know, it seems like he was quite deep in a narcotic and alcohol-induced state to be dropping the kids <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And this is this is the thing, and, you know, back to what we're talking about in um, at the beginning of the show, you know, do we celebrate those people who, in a weird way, probably don't... I'm not saying, okay, so I just want to make this clear. I'm not talking about any specific cyclists. I'm certainly not talking about our guests. But when people make those sacrifices, are we celebrating people who, you know, they have kind of quite uncomfortable discontented lives which drives them to brilliance but like in of themselves are they are they happy do they like being like that it's, you know you know when you meet some you know the cl- classic sort of tale of um an artist it's like i just i have to paint and we all go oh, wouldn't it be amazing to like have that drive and for them it's almost like a curse like i can totally remember my brief foray into that world and i genuinely like this seems insane at the moment but as i chatted to alan i was getting these flashbacks of repressed almost post-traumatic memories i can remember (laughs) with a girlfriend going to the cinema and bringing a bag of spinach with me in the cinema and eating it as she ate popcorn and thinking like this is totally normal like <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's yeah what did she say did she or, or did you hide it did you just pour it into a uh, a popcorn like a <laughs> cardboard box and make noises but we totally normalized that binary lens to view performance true that's like every single decision you take in your life every conversation you have every you know holiday every time you step out of the house is analyzed through that binary lens of will this make me a better bike rider or not and that's not a healthy way to live 
No, I really don't think it's a healthy way to live. And and this is a bit of a, you know an extension, but something that I was thinking about as we were talking. Because so Alan is um, the performance uh, chef, uh, the cycling chef as well. So he's coming at this from a sports nutrition point of view, and his sports nutrition must be pretty damn good because he's done some amazing work with some amazing athletes. But I was just thinking about our relationship as amateur cyclists to food, and. That, I think, is a case in point as to why it's dangerous to celebrate certain types of behavior in champions because it makes those things look like qualities that we should also go after. And the idea that you or I need to be, you know, 4 to 6% body fat is just ridiculous. But we're told that that is what it is to, you know, to really be a proper cyclist. Okay, so 4 to 6 is very, very low. That's Chris Froome level at the tour, but okay, like eight to ten or something yeah it was anything single digit is very very difficult to achieve is just in, yeah and is dang and is dangerous to achieve ultimately like terrible for your immune system um it's great it's great for muscle definition though which is cool we all like a bit of that don't we makes us feel good when you walk past uh you know when, you, when you're cycling past one of those signs that's kind of concave uh and because it, it shows the way out of like some rich person's drive and then you just get like really good shadows down that weird part of like your leg on the calf i mean that's gonna make you feel good isn't it but here's a hot take on high performance. I I don't necessarily think the game is about having a balanced life because if you have a balanced life, it's very difficult to achieve any, you know, high performance is not a destination. It's more of a continuum. And if you want to slide further along that continuum, you know, if you don't want to be a sportif rider, if you want to be a category two rider, you're not quite high performance in the, the sense that Alan's talking about, but you there's a lot of aspects of your life are quite high performance. So to get there, it's not about having a life of balance. I think it's about having a life of counterbalance. Like your life needs to have seasons, like, you know, we've winter and summer. And even as us as podcasters, I'm debating this on the Roadman podcast. It's like, do I need a season like winter where I go inwards myself to you know reflect to journal to read more to have a more outwardly expressive season of summer in my life that it can't be just this normal 365 days a year where we just operate you know on on the same bandwidth there's peaks and troughs in it no absolutely not and in terms of like just general life enjoyment i'm absolutely you know i think it's life is all about context it's all about ebb and flow and those peaks and those troughs to give life that you know it's kind of like enjoyable color and fabric but also it's just highly unsustainable and you'll just die if you try and live like that but you won't i'll tell you what you won't die immediately you'll be incredibly good at cycling for a while and then (laughs) and then you'll die young you'll die at seven watts a kilo yeah and like i'm not and so our last podcast um with beryl burton she i would suggest is not the worst case in point where being incredibly fit did not give her a long life. She died um, sadly when she was, I think, 58 or 59. And you know, she died, um, I don't, spoiler alert, because you've got the book and I've also got the book for Christmas. But she she died delivering invitations to her 59th birthday on her bicycle. She had a heart attack, which is desperately sad. But also she competed with a um, arrhythmia in her heart, which wasn't like advised. That is a fairly common thing of, of high-level, high-profile athletes, high-level athletes dying quite early. They don't tend to live for a long time. It's racehorses don't tend to live for a long time because you really put your body through it. And again, I guess it's like, do you want to burn bright um, for a short time or do you want to sort of be like a very dimly lit bulb in a torch where the AAA batteries are slightly too low, but for a long time? I'm going for dimly lit bulb. 
I go for the full George Best. He said he spent a lot of money on horses, girls, and fast cars, but the rest of it he just wasted. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, this is this. I tell you what, this has been a wasted chat at all. This is I put that on the list with the horses, fast cars, the girls, and the podcast chat. Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure. And this kind of rounds off. Does it round off the year? No, I think this is going to drop um, at the beginning of the year. So happy new year to everybody. But we are recording it slightly before. So to you, Anthony, I wish you many festivities uh, over the coming weeks. Um, get those pints down you and forget about your 365 degree training plan. Many happy returns, James. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And we will talk to you again soon. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.